Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through verse 64. God's word from the New Testament, give your attention to the reading of it, Mark 14, beginning in verse 53. God's word. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So when you buy something or about to purchase an item, you often look at the tag. That is, you figure out where was it made. For the origin of its manufacturing can make a difference in your decision. Made in China and made in Italy are not exactly the same. For craftsmanship and quality are regularly impacted by the country in which it was made. Though more than the country, we especially value something handmade. Handcrafted leather boots, custom-made jewelry, baked goods from scratch. This is the really good stuff. When an expert artist shapes with their own hands from the best available materials something that is beautiful and is made to last. You'll pay extra, but it's worth it. Yet when it comes to scripture, handmade has a different ring to it. It is assessed on another scale, which our Lord proves as he shows us the best thing ever made without hands. So the rest is wrapped up. The handcuffs are squeezed tight. The disciples have disappeared into the night, and Jesus remained alone with his betrayer and a small herd of temple popo. And now the temple, the officers lead our Lord out of Gethsemane and back into the city. They bring him to the high priest, whose residence was somewhere close to the temple. And despite being the middle of the night, the priestly palace is a buzz of fear, a flurry. For it's two or three in the morning, any normal person should be purring on their pillow. But dark deeds love the shadow of night. And even if the moon is full, this night is as dark as it comes. For the soldiers lead Jesus not merely to the singular high priest, 
but his palace is filled with all the other priests, the scribes, and the elders. This means all the leading scholars, all the landed nobles are there, as if it was a party of the who's who's of Jerusalem. In fact, the entire municipal council of Jerusalem has gathered the Sanhedrin, who was the legal governing body over the temple and the city. This is a 2.30 a.m. full session of the Jerusalem Senate, which betrays planning. You do not, by chance, get such important people out of bed. No, this is an emergency meeting scheduled with mandatory attendance. The call to order of the Sanhedrin is the fruit, then, of long long plans and much scheming. Indeed, we have heard for a good time now how the priests were seeking a way to destroy Jesus. As far back as chapter 3, the authorities were rubbing their hands together on how to snuff out this Jesus. But the scheming reached full speed in chapter 11 after Jesus shut down temple worship and scattered the sacrifices and their money. Then daily, as Jesus was teaching in the temple, the various scribes and priests set snares to noose Jesus in his own words, all of which were unsuccessful. Well, the priests' frustrated plans of murder, however, found their golden ticket with Judas. With his betrayal, every evil design fell into place, and so far it's unfolding without a hitch. Therefore, the crowd of distinguished nobles waiting to see Jesus is part of the elaborate and detailed conspiracy to kill our Savior. These are the brightest minds with the deepest pockets plotting together to pull off the heist of the century, the assassination of all assassinations. We are meant to be impressed, intimidated by their flexed muscles. Though Mark does add a side note about Peter. As Jesus is being put on the stand, one of his disciples who ran off came back. Peter got control of his cowardice, and he's facing his fears. For he actually slips into the courtyard of the high priest, and he's hiding among the servants around the fire. This is risky. It's dangerous. Peter's devotion to Christ is holding on with an impressive grip. The question is, though, how long will be able to hold on as the night grows darker and colder towards dawn? Yet with this brief nod to Peter, Mark takes us back inside the chambers of justice. The many judges circle around Jesus like wolves around a wounded calf. And their purpose is clear to condemn Jesus to death. The verdict is all finished, guilty. The punishment has been rendered, capital punishment. He shall surely die. But they still need a crime and evidence. Jesus is guilty. We just need to figure out what he's guilty of. Likewise, you need some supporting evidence to validate the crime. Of course, this is proper judicial procedure in reverse. According to the law, evidence of a crime comes first, and then there's a charge of a crime. Next, judges determine guilt, and finally, a a sentence is rendered. The priest, though, have read the judicial alphabet backwards. He needs to die, 
so he must be guilty. Any serious crime will work, so what evidence do we have? Such is judicial murder at its most corrupt. And yet it's not so much the fraudulence of the priest that stand out. Instead, they're looking for evidence for witnesses, and they can't find any. And it's not due to the lack of witnesses. Indeed, they have lots of people who are willing to testify Jesus. Many falsely accuse Jesus of crimes. The priests are professionals, after all, and they have lined up in the middle of the night not only all the judges, but a long queue of witnesses to testify. Nevertheless, all these lying witnesses disagree. All the law requires is of two or three witnesses agree for a conviction, but several dozens witness with no concord. These liars and fabricators can't even get their stories straight. The second liar can't even parrot the liar before him. Now, false testimony is a clear violation of the Ninth Commandment, but this lack of agreement betrays incompetence. There are evil geniuses and there's evil dunces, and the priests fall into the latter. However, we do get to see part of the court record. Several witnesses do relate something quite similar. We heard Jesus say, I will destroy this handmade temple, and after three days, I will build a temple not made with hands. Now, Mark labels this as false testimony, and he says they didn't agree on this statement. And yet, we get the feeling that there's truth here. For one, Mark doesn't record Jesus saying this in his gospel. However, in John chapter 2, this is basically the line that Jesus states. Two, in Mark 13, Jesus did predict the destruction of the temple. Maybe Judas informed this about, in them about this line. Third, Jesus did stop worship in the temple to condemn it with language from Jeremiah 7, which was an oracle of temple destruction. Fourth, the word for handmade here is the classic Old Testament term for idols. Idols are handmade, the creation of the human imagination that is then worshipped. To call the temple handmade is to label it as an idol. The priests have turned God's holy temple into their profane idol, which basically ideally fits when Jesus cited Jeremiah 7 against the temple. Finally, three days has been the consistent prediction of Jesus for his resurrection. He will die, but in three days he will be raised. And not made with hands refers to a supernatural wonder of God. Not made with hands belongs to heaven and the age to come, which is exactly what our Lord's resurrected body is. As we find in other places in the New Testament, Jesus can play off the Old Testament temple and the temple of his body. Hence, we cannot but hear truth in this statement. How then is it false? Well, as you know, it's really easy to tweak the truth into a falsehood. A statement can be 99% true and 1% lie. 
Thus, the false witnesses intend this statement only to be about the literal temple and not Christ's body. Same words, different meaning. Additionally, there's nothing really criminal about this remark. Any crazy person can say he will destroy the temple, but it's meaningless until he sets a bomb to make it happen. Moreover, to rebuild a heavenly temple in three days is a divine act. For a human to say this, this might get you tossed into the insane asylum, but it doesn't break any laws. Therefore, what we see is Mark's irony. The witnesses intend a fabrication, a harmful lie, but little do they know that they speak a deeper truth and something more profound than they can even realize. The Jerusalem temple has been made into an idol. Its handmade impurity will come down. And in three days, the heavenly-fashioned temple of Jesus' resurrected body will rise. And Jesus has the authority and power to do both. Yet these wicked, incompetent judges can't tell their right hand from their left. They can't recognize the truth of this false testimony. And their attempt to weaponize it falls flat. This super-organized trial for a midnight conviction isn't so organized after all. In fact, the high priest is getting frustrated. He's losing his patience. And so, with all the liars in disarray, he attempts to to bait the accused. If you can't get evidence against the accused, you can always try to get them to self-condemn. As you know, the human tongue is quite apt at tripping itself up, especially in times of stress. Surely the mouth of Jesus will step into it. So the high priest challenges Jesus to react. Have you no answer? Don't you hear what they're testifying against you? Aren't you going to defend yourself? Shrewdly, the high priest plays into a ubiquitous human weakness. When you are falsely blamed, we naturally push back. He did it. No, I didn't. It's like Newton's third law of motion. For every false charge, there's an equal and opposite defense. To be wrongly accused hits our reflexes to kick back. But for us to hold our peace in the face of a lying charge requires us nearly to bite our tongues off. Surely Jesus will not be able to control himself and amid this whirlwind of lies. But our Lord succeeds where we all fail. He's silent. He reacts without a peep. Like a lamb before a slaughtering priest, Jesus says not a word. No deceit or vengeance was found upon his lips. The obedience of our Lord stands out here like a lighthouse on a dark and stormy night. The high priest, though, is getting urgent. They're on the clock, after all, and they need a conviction before morning comes. So he throws out another question. Maybe Jesus will bite this baited hook. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now the high priest takes aim at Jesus' identity. Are you the Messiah? Is he 
the son of the blessed God. Yet this tactic, again, should smell off to you. For generally speaking, in a judicial case, you do not condemn someone for their identity, but for their actions. Who you are is not a crime, but what you did. It's not a crime to be a doctor, a man, or a shepherd. Sure, it can be wrong to impersonate an identity you are not, but by and large, convictions based on identity are unjust. Instead, unlawful actions are what's rightly punished by law. Thus, being the Christ and the Son of God isn't properly within the purview of the law. The high priest, then, shows himself once again to care little for justice. Nevertheless, with this question of identity, Jesus breaks his silence. He does give a response, and what a response. He simply answers in the affirmative, I am. Yes, he is the Christ. Yes, he is the Son of God. And if you've been tracking, this is a wonderful unveiling within the Gospel of Mark. For sure, by his healings and wonders, by the authority of his teaching, it's been clear that Jesus is the Christ. And yet Jesus explicitly refused to say it in the open. When demons named him the Son of God, he hushed them. He taught in parables to conceal the truth from the crowds. Peter declared him to be the Christ, but then Jesus put strict orders on his disciples to keep it private. Jesus put a non-disclosure act on the transfiguration. When the priest earlier on asked him about the source of his authority, back in chapter 11, he refused to answer. Over and over, Jesus has kept his messiahship out of the headlines and off the official public record. But now, after all this shyness, on the final night of our Lord's earthly life, Jesus comes right out and affirms it. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ, the greater son of David, the anointed one of the Holy Spirit, who has come to fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament. The redemption, the second exodus, the forgiveness of sins, the wonders of God, this is what Jesus is here to do. He also confesses, I am the son of God. He is the son as the Davidic king, but he is also the son as one higher and more glorious than any mere mortal. He knows the father and he has known the father before time started to click and beyond time unending. There is a unity and an intimacy between the father and the son that can only be described as one. From the very lips of Jesus, he then speaks the most eternal truth. He declares his eternal and everlasting identity. I am the Christ, the son of the blessed God. With lies like a black hole all about him, the true one spoke the truth. Before the truth of Jesus, gravity shivers as if false. The glorious weight of this affirmation is enough to unroot creation from the bowels of time. For God has come to earth in Jesus Christ. 
And yet our Lord is not yet finished. He continues, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, we're familiar with this language. This sitting at the right hand echoes that majestic Psalm 110, and the cloud riding of the sun heralds from Daniel 7. And yet what is marvelous about this is its blatant disregard for time. The elevation to the right hand encompasses Christ's resurrection and his ascension. It is his rise from the belly of Sheol to the summit of Mount Zion, from the subterranean to the celestial. The right hand further embodies his vindication of of his resurrection, the glorification of his ascension, and his everlasting intercession. While also returning on the on the cloud, this judges or crowns Jesus as the judge of all, as the destroyer of this age and the bringer of new creation. The seventh and last trumpet broadcast his warrior chariot to lay bare all the deeds of malice and idolatry on earth and to rescue all who know him in faith. The cloud return of Christ is the final stake in the heart to death itself. And Jesus merges them together as a single act devoid of time. For this is what his death truly accomplishes. Christ's death doesn't win one of these or pieces and parts of them, but his death ordeal merits it all. Resurrection, ascension, intercession, and second coming. This is the power of the cross for Jesus and for us in him. Now, it shouldn't bother us that he tells the priest that they will see this. For in the Old Testament, see is a regular metaphor for knowing. Indeed, we should not take this overly literal as if they will witness Christ's actual ascension. No, rather, it simply means that at some point, they, whether living or dead, will come to know this truth. That is the truth that the priests are about to deny with with all such devilry and enmity will come back on their heads. They will reap the lie that they chose. And sure enough, before Jesus has nigh finished his testimony, the tearing of a tunic cuts him off. As an act of abhorrence and grief, the high priest rips his garment. This distance, the priest, from Jesus' words, as if to declare the priest innocent, and it spits in disgust at such an abomination that Jesus uttered. But the high priest has now achieved his aim. He hoped for self-condemnation, and now he's got it. No more testimony or witnesses required. All have heard the blasphemous words of Jesus. He irrigated himself to the level of God. He claimed for himself a power and glory that only belongs to the Lord. The very utterance of such things contains its own condemnation and judgment. Of course, the corruption of the high priest is again showing. He asked if Jesus was the Christ, but he had already prejudged his admission as a lie, as an unholy fabrication, fabrication worthy of death. And so now the high priest calls for a vote. 
He moves the previous question and he gets a unanimous judgment. As a choir in harmony, all the elders, scribes, and priests vote to condemn him to death. They all say, I. And again, the irony is pungent. On one hand, the high court conducts itself with such decency and good order. They line up witnesses. They take time to gather evidence. A vote is taken. The clerk writes well-written minutes. And yet, it's all done under the cover of darkness, and the good order is done in reverse. The priests love Robert's rules, but they hate justice and truth. Therefore, Jesus is declared guilty while being righteous. They label him as a liar for telling the truth. They denounce him as a fraud for his real identity. The court judges Jesus as deserving death even as he is meriting eternal life. They color him as the worst devil for being the true God come in the flesh. The wicked horrors of this dark night are unmatched in all of human history. And yet, even as the priests excel in evil incomparable, what they do is not that unique. For is this not what essentially happens every time someone rejects Christ and his truth? In the gospel, Jesus says over and over, I am the Christ, the Son of God. And each time a sinner rejects this truth, they are again calling Christ a liar. They laugh at the truth of Christ as if it's a made-up joke. Sure, your average rejection of the gospel doesn't contain all the face-to-face malice of the priest here, but it still stands, or still lands that person in the same place by calling the Son of Man at the right hand a liar and a fraud. To reject Jesus Christ and his truth as before it's the most important truth of all and the only saving truth, to reject this as an evil deception is a condemnation. Thus, beloved, do you believe? Indeed, may we all believe. This is why we hold the gospel so dear. It's why we bend the knee to this most weighty truth that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. Indeed, may you ever believe in the truth of Christ. May you believe it in your heart. May you confess it with your mouth. And may we never depart from the good confession of Jesus Christ. For as we rest and receive the truth of the gospel, Christ saves you to the uttermost. For surely we are hidden in Christ And when we are, then Christ makes you new creations without hands. Yes, your new nature, your eternal identity, your resurrected body is made without hands. A work of heaven above, imperishable and enduring forever, a work of your beloved Savior. So then, for the everlasting praise of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, let us hold high as our banner and helm the truth of Jesus Christ. May we herald this gospel truth to all 
and with eager hope, let us never tire for looking for his coming on the clouds. Amen. Let's pray.